Hello, Brian, and welcome back to Japan by River Cruise. I'm Bobby Judo. And I'm Ali Horn. And joining us this week is Oleg Benish, historical scholar, Japanese castle expert, and the man who wrote the book on Bushido. Oleg leads the movement to discontinue the Osaka Castle Moat Cruise, which, believe it or not, we here at JBRC agree with, but only because of the Moat Monster. Oleg, thank you for being here. Thanks a lot for having me. On this week's show, Japanese community responsibility is in the news, with some people crediting the Samurai Code for Japan's compliance with coronavirus guidelines. Makes sense to me, but I also believe the gun violence epidemic in America has something to do with cowboys. Plus, Ali's got your weekly river cruise recommendation. Ali? Yes, this week's recommendation is the Nagoya-Nakagawa Canal Line, which has reopened after being closed for three days for fumigation. They're now operating once more and would like to assure passengers that the boats are now free of homeless people. Plus, for the third time this year, the JRCA raises the punitive fines against passengers who bring digital synthesizers on board for the purposes of recording and remixing River Cruise ambient audio. We'll look into why the financial deterrents are an ineffective strategy due to the phenomenon of this year's billion-dollar global boom in demand for River Cruise-based EDM. But first, Soap Talk. <laughs> Oleg, you wrote a whole book on Japanese castles. Why do you like castles so much? Oh, um, yeah, the book on castles was one of my crimes. I mean, it was one of uh, two authors. My uh, friend, Ron Zweigenberg, kind of wrote half of it. So I'm, I'm only guilty for, for half a book on Japanese castles that way. Um, I, I don't know about liking castles a lot. Um, I think it was more a, a fascination with um, kind of the idea as you go around Japan, you'll maybe have noticed that there are quite a few concrete castles um, dotting around the landscape. I mean, it seems that almost every major city has um, a large concrete castle um, in the middle of a large castle park. Why Why are you specifying um, concrete? Well, I guess original castles, I mean, they're, they're very nice structures and everything, but there's, in a sense, they're less um, perplexing. Um, that's the thing. If you, if you go and you see a, a 17th century castle like Himeji, you know, it, it's an amazing site. Um, you know, UNESCO World Heritage Site. I mean, it's a spectacular building. Um, but, you know, it's in a sense, it's 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 kind of what you would expect in the sense of a, a very old building. But is it what you'd expect? Because my impression of Himeji Castle when I saw it is this is the least threatening building I've ever seen in my life. Like, isn't the point of a castle to defend and scare? But this just looked gorgeous. Yeah, but haven't you seen it as like a ninja lair um, in the James Bond film? Yeah. It's yeah, very I mean, it's sharply looking. threatening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You're not going to cut yourself on it, are you? <laughs> no, but I, I guess the, the thing is, if you, if you look at that, and then, I mean, sure, it's, it's not in exactly what you think of a castle coming kind of from a European context. Um, and it is kind of a bit more aesthetic. Um, yeah, we've got to remember, this is two, two Americans talking to an Englishman. I mean, we don't have any castles in America. Oh. <laughs> you, have, you have a different, maybe, image or a different preconception of castles. I saw Himeji for the first time, and, like, it's, it's sharp, and it juts straight up into the air. It's kind of foreboding. Mm. I found it very threatening. Well, I don't know. I mean, I know that Oleg is based in York, and I've seen York Castle, which is a like a proper fortified complex, and it just leads up to just these two or three, like, turrets they don't even bother with any decoration at all they don't even bother with decorative turrets on the top it's just it basically the building just says fuck off <laughs> yeah it's, it's pretty bare bones in that way um uh, but i think if we look at something like Himeji and and how it's um i mean for americans you know you compare it with maybe the disneyland castles are our point of reference <laughs> um but if, if we go somewhere like osaka for example and you look at it and it looks quite similar to Himeji, and then you go inside and it's just 
kind of a concrete bunker. Um, you know, it's just, you know, it's got like, it's got lifts, it's got, it's got air conditioning, it's got everything what you'd kind of expect from a modern building. And, and that I think is what initially kind of intrigued us about this project is, you know, why does Japan have so many concrete castles and, and what's happened to these to result in this? And what is the brief history of Japanese castles? When were they generally built and why are they still around? Well, there, there's this kind of narrative, uh, popular narrative that, um, you know, they were destroyed in the Second World War, that, you know, they were all built in the late 16th, early 17th centuries. We did um, not they, bomb that many locations. They, yeah, they, exactly. They survived hundreds of years and then were destroyed um, in the Second World War. I mean, a few structures were lost in the Second World War. I mean, Nagoya Castle is a good example of that. Um, but actually, most of them were torn down by the Japanese um, government in the early 1870s. Um, after the Meiji Restoration in 1868, you know, Japan wanted to get away from its kind of feudal past right. and move into an era of civilization and enlightenment. And castles were just seen as kind of embarrassing, you know, reminders of this feudal past. And so, and they were obsolete. They just tore them all down. Um, and very few of them actually managed to survive um, the 1870s. That's um, so funny that the way to move into a civilized future is to destroy all record of your past. And they run into an issue there because they start tearing them all down. And then um, you get a lot more Japanese traveling to Europe. I mean, there's a famous Iwakura mission around the world, 1871 to 73-ish. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they're visiting um, all these European countries and they're going to all these different castles in Europe. You know, they visit the Queen in London and she lives in a medieval castle. And it's like, oh, wait, maybe, you know, we shouldn't be tearing these things down. Maybe they have some value. And, you know, they kind of go back and it's like, all right, stop. Let's not let's not uh, do any more of this. Guys, we got to get rid of all of this. It's going to be so embarrassing when the English come over here and they get to England. And go, Whoa, oh, whoops. <laughs> Was there anything valuable in the castles? Like, were they torn down like Henry VIII tore down the monasteries just because he wanted to get some money from it? Yeah, actually, um, they were quite valuable for kind of for the metal um, in some of them. There was other kind of lumber and, and material. Air conditioning as well, you mentioned? Or yeah, yeah. Castle I mean, that, that, that's a couple of years after the 1870s, but yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so they sell a lot of them off. I mean, Himeji's a good example. They sell Himeji Castle off to someone to tear down for the for the materials. Um, and it's just too much hassle and too expensive to tear down, so it ends up surviving because um, it's just not worth the, the scrap. Speaking of Japanese historical relics that have survived into the present, uh, if you'd like to fax us, we have a fax button on our japanbyrivercruise.com homepage. Uh, please feel free to get in touch if there's anything you'd like to ask or uh, suggest or have us read on air. Ali, and with that, shall we take a look at the news? Bobby Judah, what's in the news this week? We've been seeing a lot about Japanese social responsibility and its relationship to Bushido, especially in terms of coronavirus and social compliance to the coronavirus guidelines. Oleg, do you think Bushido is to credit for the way Japan has succeeded with its coronavirus prevention measures? Um, I think Bushido's to be credited with a lot of things. Um, I certainly don't think it has anything to do with coronavirus prevention measures. I, Samurai I did I, wear I, masks, didn't they? That's true, but... I mean, I don't know how many viruses those would keep in or out. I'd like to ask quite a specific question, which is, what is Bushido? I mean, literally translated, it's, you know, the way of the samurai uh, or the way of the warrior can kind of be translated as either one. And it's kind of usually, well, popularly described as kind of an ancient um, martial ethic um, of the Japanese warriors that is some sort of um, kind of defining cultural 
spirit of the Japanese yeah. people. It gets translated quite often as samurai code. Uh, and this was specifically at this this remote lecture at Scuba University of Tokyo with a couple of leaders from different uh, countries. I think someone from Taiwan was there. Uh, Japanese leaders were there. But they brought up the issue of Japan's high level of voluntary compliance with the guidance around corona prevention measures. And when asked why Japan did so well with voluntarily complying, uh, one of the Japanese leaders referred to Bushido, the samurai code. The most important thing is to think of others in the collective, and the worst thing is to take actions that might harm others, which I feel like traditionally samurai did take actions that harmed others, <laughs> like, like with swords and things. Yeah, that's kind of one of their core kind of MOs there, is the, the whole sword, sword bit. And, <laughs> And yeah, violence if you, thing. Yeah, if if you look at medieval samurai, especially, yeah, I don't, I don't think they would have been too concerned about um, most other people. So when we're talking about a samurai code, is this like what their staff training manual said they had to be, <laughs> or are these people that were selected because they already had these characteristics? I mean, I think significantly, um, we kind of have this this watershed around 1600. There's this kind of battle of Sekigahara under which the the Tokugawa then take um, charge of the country. I think it's before that the samurai or the warriors are actually warriors in the warring states period, kind of does what it says on the tin. And then after 1600, we have this period of great peace. And that's when the samurai as a kind of distinct class are actually formed. Mm -hmm. But during that period of great peace, again, you know, it kind of does what it says. You know, there isn't much reason for samurai warriors. Um, and they essentially turn into a class of kind of elite bureaucrats who run the country. I understand from your book that the way they initially conceived of, of kind of codifying Bushido came from kind of two places. One from nostalgia and also from kind of like having to justify their position as elites. Yeah, so some of the, the texts that people now use as kind of the supposed sources of the, the way of the samurai, um, even if they don't use the term Bushido, um, are often trying to do that they're trying to justify why they are in charge of the country why they are a governing elite in a country that doesn't actually need warriors um so that's part of it and the other side is this nostalgia because as supposed warriors you know they're, they're allowed to carry two swords you know a lot of them are thinking about that period oh what would it have been like you know in the 16th century when i could have been out fighting in these great battles and i could have you know, been killing people and maybe died an honorable death. Whereas in the 18th century, you know, I'm just in charge of the stables here. Do, do you know what? I, I have exactly this thought about the British ruling class. Like I think about like Boris Johnson's current cabinet, which is all Oxbridge grads, all with, you know, family which has money going back generations. I bet they think from time to time, if only this was happening 100 years ago, all of these people that were writing these stupid think pieces, I'd just have them killed right it must be so it must be so annoying to be at the end of this period where they've still got just enough of this latent privilege to get into power but not enough of it left uh, that they can't abuse that power uh, as much as they would like to do so well i think there's some really important parallels there actually that you're touching on which are yes that in in, in the late 19th century in britain i mean we have this what's called kind of the victorian chivalric revival when especially the aristocracy, but really, I mean, throughout society, everyone is fascinated with the medieval period. I mean, we think about Sir Walter Scott and books like mm. Ivanhoe. Um, we look at like the Houses of Parliament that are built in this this kind of Gothic style. Um, yes. You know, you know, kind of captains of industry are building their giant stately homes like medieval castles. There's just this, this fascination, this nostalgia with this kind of fantasy earlier medieval period. Right. And this 
is very visible to people who are visiting Britain. I mean, when the Japanese visit the UK, they see this um, and they see the celebration of the medieval period in what is at that point the most powerful empire in the world. And if it's good enough for the most powerful empire in the world, then maybe it's good enough for Japan. And that's when we see people in Japan actually trying to rediscover their own medieval past and knighthood. So is this just pure nostalgia? Well, nostalgia is a, a large part of it, but it is also this interaction, especially between Japan and Britain, I think, which is which is core. Right. Yeah. So when we, we think of Bushido, we hear of the samurai way as Westerners, we tend to assume that it is this very traditional, very pure Japanese original thing. But in reading your book, I was just fascinated by this idea that it was a direct response and created in response to to English or Victorian chivalry. Yeah. So, I mean, certainly, I mean, in kind of the early modern period when we had samurai, I mean, samurai did have ethics, um, but they were very diverse. I mean, there's not anything that we can really point to and say, oh, there's a samurai code that everyone agreed to. Two swords, uh, Max. Yeah, exactly. That. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah. Three swords is overkill. Um, but But what happens then... After 1868, when you have the new imperial government, there's a huge backlash kind of against the samurai. People don't really want anything to do with the samurai after that period. You know, the, the samurai class is abolished along with other classes. And you have this this like, this like big movement towards kind of westernization, civilization, enlightenment. And then in the late 1880s, we have kind of a big backlash against this westernization. People are thinking, oh, we're going too far. We need to go back to whatever our Japanese roots are. And we there have people, then a few thinkers around 1890, who are looking at these kind of European texts about European medieval period um, and the chivalric revival. And they say, oh, well, we need something like that. We need a spirit of gentlemanship like, like Britain has. And actually, just like the British kind of ideal of the gentleman is based on medieval knighthood, mm -hmm. we can create a Japanese gentleman who's based on our feudal knighthood, the samurai, and so we create this way of the samurai. And so this is very consciously created around 1890. And then what happens after that, once it starts being established in the 1890s and the term Bushido starts becoming popular, then people start going back to earlier history and cherry picking various texts mm -hmm. to actually say, oh, well, here's some evidence for Bushido earlier. Right, right. So so kind of using this revisionist perspective, kind of they, they've, they've got a hammer and they're in search of a nail. Entirely. So who have they created this for? Initially, they're, they're very much creating it um, for people in Japan. Um, the, the key early figures here um, are essentially trying to get um, their countrymen, essentially, to behave in certain ways. Um, they're trying to also promote, I mean, these kind of general values of honesty, um, kind of frugality, um, kind of a lot of things that we associate with just um, also Victorian gentlemanship um, and these kind of ethics. So they're trying to promote it among their countrymen. And then what we have is we have the Sino-Japanese War in 1894-95. Um, and when Japan defeats China, we have this huge surge of nationalism. And suddenly we get a lot more kind of militaristic kind of martial elements coming into Bushido. And okay, people start right. saying, oh, yeah, this is really actually an ancient way of the warrior people start trying to tie it in with um, kind of like the mythical emperor Jimmu, kind of the first the first emperor. Right. Um, and that's when things really start to start to take off. But throughout the 1890s, it's still very much written by Japanese and aimed at a Japanese audience. What was that? What was that 
transition like from chivalric and based on honesty, honesty and and communal virtues to martial virtues? It's a really difficult one, and what you actually end up with is multiple bushidos. I mean, so you you actually still have this kind of strand, which is more um, kind of westernized, I guess we could, and and is more kind of universal. And this is what Nito Beinaso then does in in 1900 with his his English book, you know, Bushido: The Soul of Japan. And so that strand strand continues to exist. But then what we also have is what I call imperial Bushido, which is much more nationalistic and focused on emperor worship. And so what we have, and and this is why I, I kind of translate Bushido in two ways. I translate it once as the way of the samurai, which is more based on that uses kind of historical texts from the 17th and 18th centuries. Right. And then there's another kind of way of the warrior, which is much more tied to um, kind of like emperor worship and going back to the age of the gods and such. And which one wears masks? Oh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> that's the next book. <laughs> so it goes through all of these historical phases and, and there are multiple Bushidos and you also have to kind of keep track of this idea that within Japan it's conceptualized one way and outside of Japan it's conceptualized another way and they don't always necessarily follow each other. Like the external view of Bushido doesn't necessarily keep up with the internal view of Bushido, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes perfect sense to yeah. me as someone who thinks that the UK is like Downton Abbey. <laughs> <laughs> I think that we have a lot of diversity in Bushido, both within and outside of Japan is the issue. We have multiple Bushidos everywhere. And I mean, one thing we can look at to kind of exemplify this is in the United States in kind of the 1930s and 1940s, because the Jap or the the U.S. Army is looking at Japan and they're looking at this kind of very militaristic Bushido that, you know, it's death focused. The Japanese will never surrender. And I mean, this this whole discourse leads to some some horrific events in the Pacific War in the 1940s. Yeah. But at the same time, you've got a huge Japanese American community. Um, we know about the Japanese American internment then. And a lot of the Japanese Americans are actually using Bushido to argue that actually they are very loyal to the United States. Huh. Because they have this Bushido spirit as, you know, people of Japanese descent. And that means they will only ever be loyal to their own country, which is America in this case. So what you're basically saying is Bushido can mean anything you want it to mean. This is the thing. The word isn't really used before the 1890s. So if, if I say Bushido was this, you can't really point at any earlier texts and say, no, it says very clearly here in the 16th century that Bushido is this. Um, yeah, because which is so there. fascinating because as a concept, it's one which appeals to something very yeah. deep unique within japanese nature going back centuries yeah. and centuries we you really can use it to justify anything which is why um on my application for permanent residency when they said why should we give you permanent residency i wrote bushido uh, <laughs> they give it to you because of their bushido <laughs> policies or your bushido spirit both i'm hoping both but to backtrack a little bit to the sino-japanese war when it be became kind of more used as a martial code and and propagated you know internally as propagated within Japan as this set of martial values and living by the sword kind of um how how did it proceed after that like with the Russo-Japanese war so i think in the Sino-Japanese war it's it's still the Sino-Japanese war is actually m more popularly seen as kind of a Kind of competition between Japan and China with which has westernized more successfully. Right. You know, they both have, have very modern fleets. Um, I think they're mainly built in, in the north of England. The Russo-Japanese war then becomes more about kind of the spiritual elements, 
that you know Russia was obviously a a, a huge modern nation. Um, and Japan defeated them due to their superior spirit. And that's where we really see Bushido starting to be credited for everything. When it was just Japan and China going to war, it was like these two kind of like still minor countries that nobody took mm -hmm. seriously and which one's going to come out on top. And then Japan turns around and beats Russia. And also that was a big surprise, right? Because mm -hmm. like even Russia went into that war going, this is going to be a quick war in order to stir up a bit of nationalism and populism back home. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a huge surprise. Um, and, and that war is incredibly important also because the men who fight in the Russo-Japanese War later on become kind of the senior officers who are leading the country in the 1930s. Okay. And so the right. thing... Okay, and, okay, and so, okay. And so what you're saying is it was like a bit of a fluke. It's like those people that, that end up getting podium at the Olympics only because all of the seven other runners in the track had something unfortunate happen to them. And now they're, now they're like promoted to head of all sports. And they're like, oh, God. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not entirely fluke in the sense Japan were very clever when they went into it and they knew that they couldn't fight a protracted war. And they said, we can we can do this for a year and then we need to get the Americans to essentially negotiate for peace with us to, to kind of lead this. And that's what they did. If it had gone on longer, most people think, you know, Russia probably would have won. That is a smart policy, isn't it? Just before you go into an argument with your girlfriend, I'm going to be able to do this for five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and then after five minutes, we're going to be calling out, calling some outside backup. So what happens after Japan loses World War II? There's a lot of kind of imperial ideologies that are there that kind of go away after 1945. Right. Uh, because they're completely discredited. I mean, the emperor obviously renounces his divinity. We have a lot of other things going on and a lot of concepts we never hear about again. Bushido, though, because we have these multiple Bushidos, it comes back. So this Wait a minute. Did you Bushido just say we never heard about the emperor's divinity again? Because there's a there's a very loud truck that drives by my oh, house yeah. every other week. <laughs> no, but I mean, some of the other some of the other concepts that, that aside from certain loud trucks, they haven't they haven't. <laughs> They haven't become mainstream in the same way that they were before 1945, I guess, yeah. would be the way to Okay, to I'm confused. It. Is loud trucks Bushido or not Bushido? Um, I think those loud trucks sometimes do have Bushido written on the side of them. <laughs> um, and, and this is a, so that, that strand of imperial Bushido does continue to exist in certain um, demographics. But what it's largely discredited immediately after 1945. But the thing is, you still have these other Bushidos, like Nitobe Inazo's kind of more pacifistic Bushidos, right. which haven't right. been discredited. <laughs> Actually, the, the Bushidos, which uh, promote things like humility and giving in when you need it, to. It, yeah, it, and, and you get a bunch of historians then in the nineteen late 1940s and especially 1950s who are saying, okay, so all that Bushido stuff um, in the 1930s and 40s was corrupted. What we need to do is we need to go back and find the real Bushido. Oh, but, you know, <laughs> they've got in their minds that this Bushido thing exists, and right. then they start going back and looking at 16th, 17th century texts and finding it because, you know, Mm. But when when does it crop up and how is it used? Oh, um, aside from COVID and masks, um, anytime someone is trying to describe Japanese behavior in a larger scale. So, for example, we we talked about like sport is one thing, like samurai blue, you know, the men's soccer team. Right, right. Um, whenever a Japanese athlete does something, often we'll hear Bushido mentioned. We heard it after the Fukushima disaster. You know, the the, the nuclear plant workers were called nuclear samurai, nuclear like samurai. going selflessly yeah, yeah. in. Like, wow. These are a lot of the contexts we hear it. The government has mentioned it in the early 2000s when they wanted to bring moral education into the uh, into the school system. They're like, oh, we need to teach the kids more Bushido. Um, so those are a lot of the contexts where where you hear it today. And something like COVID, again, this this idea of, of compliance um, and that the Japanese com are kind of obedient and comply with with orders from above and such. And also they look after one another. That's often 
like kind of framed in terms of Bushido. And that is actually a really interesting development as a historian, because this ties in with concepts of individualism. Because one of the things that that's mentioned here then is like, oh, well, you know, Americans or Europeans are so individualistic, whereas the Japanese care more about the collective. But actually, if we look at debates in the 1880s and 1890s, um, when this concept of individualism is, is really kind of being discussed in Japan, and they're looking at how you translate it, a lot of people actually think that one of the issues Japan has is that the Japanese are too individualistic. And actually, it's, it's the Europeans and Americans, the Westerners, who are much more collective. And one of the examples they use is that Westerners, you know, they play football, they play baseball, they play rugby, they do all these collective sports, mm -hmm. they learn teamwork, and that then also helps them like in military encounters, it helps the societies, it helps people go here. Whereas in Japan, you know, it's martial arts, which are all very individualistic. And the Japanese are too individualistic. And if they remain individualistic, you know, they won't be able to succeed in like this competition between nations. Huh. So the idea that, you know, the Japanese are more collective and Westerners are more individualistic, you know, it's a pretty recent phenomenon in a lot of ways. And it was heavily debated. And it really does depend on how you understand the society or the culture, whether you're inside or outside. I think it's, it reminds me of the idea of how everyone always says that Japanese language is so aimai because instead of saying no, they'll say chotto. But like, if you are Japanese, you understand that that means I'm not doing that. Like, there's nothing aimai about it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the society couldn't function if it was as vague as a <laughs> yeah. lot of people portray it. I mean, so could it be true that Japan does have some unique societal characteristics? Like maybe they think of others' welfare more than another country might think of others' welfare or whatever, which might be true, but not nevertheless related to this concept of Bushido. Yeah, well, I think I think there we probably have to also maybe separate people's actions and the motivations for those actions. Mm. So, for example, people wearing masks. I mean, are people wearing masks because they are constantly thinking about the welfare of others? Or are they wearing masks because everyone is wearing masks and, you know, there is quite a bit of, of peer pressure around that? I mean, we see that here in the UK, how people have gradually taken to wearing masks, you know, three months ago maybe 10% of people wore them, and now you go into any shop and everyone's wearing them. And it's not necessarily because yes. of the law, but... No. It's funny how quickly it happens, isn't it? It reminds me of uh, of H.L.A. Uh, Hart's theory of, of how we internalize norms. Mm -hmm. You know, he talks about the traffic light. You don't stop at the traffic light because if you don't, you think that a police person might arrest you and then you might get some fine. You stop because you've just internalized that red traffic light means you stop mm. and that's not saying that the state has this weird exertion over you it's just that's now become normal and i do find it really funny that people feel, feel so threatened by the idea that they have to wear a mask because for them this idea of wearing a mask is still something imposed upon them rather than just something which is which is quite quickly seeped mm. into the normal functioning of of society just by becoming a, a norm and and if, if if we consider there, because people will tend to focus on Japan and say, oh, this is about, you know, compliance and obedience and then also looking after other people. But then, you know, throughout East Asia, Southeast Asia, you know, mask wearing is incredibly widespread. And, you know, a big part of this is there has been the SARS epidemic. There have been other things. People mm. are used to doing this. Right. Um, but obviously, these are incredibly diverse cultures um, and, you know, they don't all have Bushido. Well, well, that's that's what I wanted to talk about in the way that like it's still perceived as this warrior code overseas, whereas now internally in Japan, the focus, at least right now, is on social compliance, on thinking of others' welfare. It's turned back into kind of the 
the pacifist view of these Bushido values. Whereas overseas, if you were to ask someone in China what Bushido means to them, they still remember what Japan did to them. Well, I mean, that that is actually an excellent point. I've, I've, I've written on this because the place that Bushido is bigger than anywhere, including Japan, is China. Um, and it is one of the main things that's used to understand Japan and China. And I mean, you go into Chinese bookstores and, you know, the books on Japan will have a lot of Bushido in them. I mean, that is kind of one of the main ways of understanding the Japanese. So outside of Japan, the other place where Bushido is most popular is in China. Um, I, I think so. I mean, I've, I've probably got a thousand, two thousand kind of books and articles that deal with Bushido from the last 30 years. Well, then, um, boom, Chinese. there's your answer right there. No, you cannot credit Bushido with being good for the coronavirus. Hey, thanks very much for listening to this episode 56 of Japan by River Cruise. Thanks as ever to those who support us at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Japan by River Cruise. If you have thought about supporting us by buying a coffee but haven't done so yet, allow this to be your humble prompt. And thank you again to our guest this week, Oleg Benish. Oleg, I'm really enjoying your book, Inventing the Way of the Samurai. I'd also like to get Japan's castles. I'm finding that you make really complicated Japanese historical subjects really accessible. Uh, if our listeners would like to find more from you, where can they look? No, thanks a lot for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. Um, if anyone is interested, my website, um, olegbenish.com, is probably the first uh, port of call. All right, check it out. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we will see you next week.